0: The big silence, empowering personal experiences, inspiring compassion, and healing lives. We are no longer silent. We are here. The big silence. Hello, it's your host, Karina here. I just finished a wonderful podcast interview with Dr. Mariel Bouquet. It's all about breaking the cycle. She has a new book coming out called Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. She is a Black Dominican Columbia University trained psychologist in intergenerational trauma. And this conversation has been coming up a lot with myself and my friends. And how can we break that cycle? So this podcast is full of tips how to break the cycle and... I asked you the question because it's the holiday season tips for family gatherings and triggers. So she's got all the answers for you to get through the holidays full of love and laughter. And I think you're going to love this. And then also don't forget to subscribe, share this podcast. Anyone going into the holiday season, you need this podcast. Uh, and subscribe, download all the things. And of course, we have some new things coming out if you are a member of the Big Silence newsletter. So in the show notes, we will link to where you sign up for the newsletter because we have private things coming to you every Monday starting soon. All right, have a beautiful day and enjoy the conversation. The big silence, the big silence. The- Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Mariel Bouquet. Break the Cycle, A Guide to Healing Intergenerational Trauma. I've been wanting to have a conversation like this for quite some time because I feel like I'm having more and more conversations with friends and acquaintances around this and this topic. And so I think it's really important to talk about. And before we dive in, I want to hear more about where you grew up and what your, your youth was like.
1: Yeah, so... My goodness, I actually grew up in two different places. Thank you for starting us here, by the way. It's a beautiful beginning. I grew up both in the Dominican Republic and Mm -hmm. in Newark, New Jersey. So actually in DR, I lived until I was five years old in the capital of Santo Domingo. And we lived a... Poverty is a concept that is very nuanced, right? Because poverty in the Dominican Republic is very different than the poverty we lived here in Newark, New Jersey. But the poverty there, it felt like a happier poverty, but it was we had less resources even than in the US. We lived in a tiny, tiny, tiny bedroom inside of someone's home. And still we had like so much joy. And then here in the US, a lot, a lot of what I remember about my upbringing has a, some traumatic flavors, mostly around immigration trauma and also the bitter cold of New Jersey, which I still have not adjusted to. But my childhood always kind of like is set in this, you know, these, these two kind of experiences of being in a, Your dogs. I I love
0: that you have your dogs under you.
1: There you go. Put her on your (laughs) sibling rivalry. There over here fighting, of course. But yeah, you know, it's it was marked by that, but it was also a childhood in which I had parents that were very loving and tried their best. To really give myself and my sister a good foundation, despite the fact that we had a very big deficit in economic resources and even in each other, because we were separated for a total of about 13 years because of immigration policy. Wow.
0: Wow. Okay. So do you, let's go back to your ancestors or your grandparents or this, and like where, as we dive into intergenerational trauma, because I had... My grandparents emigrated from the Ukraine in the 50s, and there's a lot of that, I feel, in my family and in your body, especially even for my father. But what about your grandparents?
1: So my grandparents were people that lived in even dire, more dire circumstances, to be frank. My grandmother, she was somebody who was really soft-spoken, gentle, kind, my maternal grandmother specifically, and as I uncovered a lot of her history through some of what she told me, but also some of what my mother and my aunt had also indicated, she also suffered a lot, you know, and a lot of that was situated in poverty. Now on my mother's side, they actually come from what are still, they're still present and they're called like sugar plantations. In the Dominican Republic, which are still very, very, there's about 400 that still exist. And people that live there live as sugarcane cutters and they basically like live really, really under really harsh conditions and in these tiny little shacks. And my, on my mother's side, my, my parents, my grandparents, in essence, like came from that lived experience. And on my father's side, they also lived in poverty, but it wasn't as dire. You know, they had a home and within that home, they had at least like resources for food, whereas in my, on my mother's side, they actually they experienced a lot of deficit in food and not being able to eat some days. So it was like, you know, the poverty was very, very prominent in my world, which is why in the book, I start off with that first line. My grandmother, my mother and I all grew up in poverty because it just felt like such a prominent through line of how pain got transferred forward, where Mm -hmm. people just lived in chronic survival mode. Mm -hmm. And we just did the best that we could through those circumstances.
0: Why do you think, because you said happier poverty in Dominican Republic versus the United States, why do you think that is for you and your experience?
1: Yeah, I've never quite, I think the United States has this personality. That Mm -hmm. is situated in individualism, being able to kind of like be above other people. Like it just has this like kind of culture that I didn't quite experience in the DR. And the DR felt very communal and people felt more kind. Yeah, maybe like a competitiveness in the US Mm -hmm. or something like that. Yeah. There is. Yeah. And it's, I think it's all goes back to that kind of capitalistic, like super machine that the U.S. Is, is is basically. And I I felt that even as a kid, I think that it's just kind of inevitable. But in the DR, I felt like I could be a kid. Mm-hmm. In the U.S., I felt like I needed to, as soon as we landed, like we needed to just make it. Versus in the DR, I felt like even in poverty, even when kids didn't have shoes. It just felt like we were still existing as kids and that felt happy to me.
0: Right. And just in presence and having fun. And how old yeah. were you when you moved to the U.S.? I was five. Five. Okay.
1: Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Very well, young. I grew up in this, I kind of, I mean, I was in Peru, Indiana, very small town. Like there's nothing. My <laughs> I grew up barefoot, Running in train tracks, going into empty cars, like playing make believe, and there was that freedom of being a, a kid. And then yeah. you moved to the the bigger city of Indianapolis, and that's and it's like, you know, culture shock. Mm-hmm. But so then you're separated from your sister from your sister for thirteen years,
1: right? Uh, from my father actually. Fa- father, okay.
0: Mm-hmm. And so, how is yeah. that then being
1: reunited? It was really difficult. Like most people would probably think that reuniting with a family member after that long a period of time, it kind of like everything just goes back to normal and just feels like great again. But, you know, my father came to the US to finally live with us once he acquired his residency when I was 21. So I was oh, already a woman. Yeah. Mhm. I was a woman. I was developed. <laughs>
0: You were at Columbia
1: University,
0: so probably almost graduating. So how do you get to that point from coming from the DR and then to the U.S. and then going to Columbia? And how did you choose what you wanted to study?
1: I actually, undergrad, I did actually at Rutgers University. And I studied media and journalism because I wanted to be like my dad, who was a reporter, in my home country in DR. And I think that was a desire to be something that could keep me close to him because Mm. of the separation. Like I just wanted anything that could help me feel closer to my dad. But I actually worked in the field for about five years and I was not very happy. I just felt like I was just feeding a machine and wasn't really kind of like, it wasn't soulful kind of work. Like I'm a soulful person. It just didn't match and eventually i found my way into the world of therapy and the world of healing through therapy and understanding understanding that i could actually help my communities in this way and i was like my goodness like this is where i need to go i got pushed along the way by certain people i actually had a therapist at that time my first therapist and in our first session he said i think you'd make a great therapist you should probably consider that and so with that i also you know kind of like built the ammunition to transition into that career. And the reason why I applied to Columbia, believe it or not, I didn't even know what an Ivy League institution was. I had no idea that Columbia was an Ivy League and what that even meant. I actually applied to Columbia simply because it was close to my home and I didn't have to (laughs) leave my family. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because we already had been separated for so long that I didn't want to leave. So yeah, yeah, that's that's how that happened.
0: (laughs) So for anyone listening and, uh, you know, intergenerational trauma is a term that we both know well, but possibly can you explain what that means exactly?
1: Yeah, it's actually the only type of trauma that is handed down our family line. And it happens at the intersection of two modes of transmission, one of which is our biology and the other is our psychology. And, you know, when it comes to our biology, there's a lot that's in there that's a lot a lot to consider but most notably at least through the studies that we've been able to uncover and do in the recent years we understand that there is a genetic encoding that happens to people like our parents grandparents and so forth who have undergone extreme adversity or some level of longstanding adversity meaning that their adversity was chronic and that those experiences should they go on unaddressed and remain captured in the body for an extended period of time Mm. could show up in their genetic coding. And that genetic encoding then gets transferred over at conception onto us. There's also a multitude of other things that happen, including in utero. There's a lot of experiences that are processed in utero, hormonally, genetically, that are also implicated in transmissions. But that is the most notable one. And it is a part of the understanding that we're gathering particularly from the field of epigenetics, which is our, it helps us understand how our environment shapes our genes. Mm -hmm. Although there have been other, you know, fields that have also helped like fields around cellular biology, neuropsychology, there's a lot of Others that are also implicated in in our understanding. So it is very complex and comprehensive, but our genes, that's in essence like most of where the biology is held. And then, you know, once we're born, you know, everything else comes into play, our psychology. And we can either, you know, be born into a home that really helps us to solidify, you know, who we are and feel grounded in our emotions and feel like we have protective caregivers and protective structures and people around us that help us navigate childhood, or there can be disruptions in our childhood that lead to what we now call the adverse childhood experiences or ACEs, or even beyond the ACEs, other things that can happen in our lives that can then make it so that whatever tenderness and genetic encoding may have been present already, then transitions into being almost kind of like triggered Mm -hmm. out into being an actual trauma response. And since we're talking about people that are in essence coming from homes where trauma was already present in one generation, now transferred into the next generation, it's called intergenerational trauma. So what would
0: one tip be if someone wants
1: to make that move to
0: help break this trauma?
1: The most important thing for anyone to consider beyond trying to dig into your family tree and see like what's there beyond of course therapy is essential but beyond even like some of the talk therapy that we tend to go into whenever trauma is present in our lives the most critical piece is being able to go back into our bodies and help settle our nervous system and it's important to remember of course that we're talking about a trauma that is also very much a body based experience, right? And so when we can actually engage our bodies in a, in the experience of feeling release and calm and ease and groundedness, it helps us to better process not only what has happened to us, what happened before us, and also helps us to just lead a life that is also gentler. And what we would have led because trauma has been such a prominent part of our lives and because there's so much biology that's implicated in the emotional experience of trauma, it's going to be incredibly critical to really centralize our efforts in being able to help the body to absolve itself of stress.
0: Right. So I love in your book, I'm going to bring this up. Chapter three, your body remembers your trauma. And number one, I'll read a little part of this, but I love how you are actually speaking out about mind body connection and how you also bring in sound as a healing part and yes so traditionally western medical science treats the body and mind as two systems that operate apart from one another we don't help people relieve stress as a way to improve their physical health but we should under the current medical model each organ is treated independently rather than being viewed as an interactive global system a cardiologist treats your heart a gastroenterologist will treat your digestive tract. A pulmonologist will focus on your lungs. A neurologist will focus on the brain. And you go on about that. And the importance of your mind and body are a single system, not two independent ones. And I loved that when I read it. Because when my mom, before she passed, was in the hospital. And she was having a lot of GI issues. And she was schizophrenic and suffered from depression. And they're like, and I went to the doctors and I said, can we talk about her mental health? And they said, we only handle deal with physical health here. And so I love how you're bringing this together because I know the stress on the body is what affects your systems. So can we talk about that?
1: Absolutely. There is a really, really prominent way in which our stress and the things that we undergo within our lives have a direct impact on our bodies not only in the short term but also in long term meaning that there there is a direct connection that we're making through multiple studies and multiple bodies of work in understanding the ways in which a lot of the chronic illnesses that we tend to see in modern day society have a direct correlation to stress and unaddressed trauma and it's it's in a part of the reason why I wrote that aspect of the book in there was almost kind of as a nudge to the health system Mm -hmm. to do better Mm -hmm. because we are doing a disservice to the people that we serve by having a fractured system that fractures the human beings that we are commissioned to serve. And it is something that I've experienced in my own life and even with my own mother and the ways in which we take her to, you know, she's in her older age, in her seventies. And we take her to a bazillion different specialists, all of which provide Mm -hmm. a medication that is specific for that organ that they're treating versus really seeing her as a complete human with a whole system that's interconnected and interdependent. And that one of those systems is her nervous system and is her brain and is the experiences that she's had that have been deeply, deeply traumatic. Mm -hmm. And that all of that is being represented in her body as fibromyalgia Mm -hmm. and it's being represented in her body as arthritic inflammation and that both fibromyalgia and arthritis and other types of autoimmune conditions have been mapped back to chronic stress, trauma, and especially childhood trauma. And that nobody has that lens to be able to look at my mother in a more humanizing way and look at all of our mothers and look at all of our family members in these ways that are going to be critical for us to understand in order to discontinue the fracturing of the people that are being served through the health system. So
0: yes, I 100% agree. Yeah same with my mother she had gi go to gi doctor she had heart you go there you have yeah but no mind nothing to talk about the mind um so how are you making a change in the world and bringing mind and body together
1: in part this book is as I mentioned, is me trying to push the needle on us being able to build more integrative systems, right? It's more, it's for the cycle breakers and for anybody who is doing the healing work themselves. But it also is a nudge to the systems that are healing systems for us to like, you know, really integrate that message and realize that it's possible. When I was at Columbia Medical Center doing my rotations as the psychology clinician inside of these like different specialty clinics that we had in this Columbia system, I was in neurology, cardiology, um, OBGYN, primary care, right? Like a different rotations. And we were trying to build an innovative system of care, one in which we had multiple different disciplines of healthcare mm-hmm. into one room, working together to understand the one human that we're serving. And so my hope was that I could bring that to the fore in this prominent way within this book so that people can see that are in these healthcare systems in positions of authority, they can see, you know what, actually Columbia did it, it's possible. We can do this, we can do an integrative process and we can start seeing the people that we serve in this more global way. And so that is a part of what I hope can be the mission that this book fulfills, in addition to also helping the Individuals themselves, all the cycle breakers to understand also how to self advocate, right? And also how to understand their own mind body connection and the ways in which they should be asking different kinds of questions. If your belly aches, can we talk about what happened yesterday that, you know, left you feeling, um, angry and the possibility that anger is situated in your belly region and it's, Causing constriction and that constipation is actually not constipation or IBS C. But what it is is a, you know, your nervous is continuously being in a state of alarm. And that overactive state actually constricts your digestive tract and makes it feel as though you're actually constipated when in reality you don't have the movement that you should have because you're nervous system is signaling to your gastro tract that you are in survival mode and you don't need to digest right now. What you need to do is instead survive. So can we talk about that, right? Like, I think it's like the conversation is different and it's more nuanced and it's more globalized around the whole human and what's really happening to you through and through when you have these experiences that go on unaddressed and how they then metabolize inside of your body.
0: Yeah. And we've been talking about mind-body connection for decades and decades. But a lot of mind-body connection is actually new to a lot of people. So what are some things to help calm the mind that you would recommend for someone brand new who's like, I need to calm my mind because I'm feeling all my body and my nervous system is freaking out?
1: One of the... Best things that people can do, in my opinion, and I've constantly heard that this has been helpful, not only in my practice, but also people that just go out and do these practices in other spaces, is sound bath meditations. A sound bath meditation actually has a way in which it can calm your body and your mind simultaneously in the moment. But the added benefit and the added effect of being able to engage in a meditative practice that actually has that mind body component is that it also helps you in the long term. You have both brain memory and body memory and both of which are actually being stimulated to, um, experience greater ease and greater calm in the long term because of the work that you're doing in that 30 to 30 to 45 minute sound bath meditation. And so that's one of the practices that I always keep in my back pocket to say to people, hey, there's a bunch of free ones out there if you don't have access or if you don't have the time to really go into a studio. The studio, of course, will be the vibrations are different. It is better, but there are alternatives. There are also binaural beats, which are you know at, at specific hertz that actually create an alpha state or a way in which your mind can go into this kind of transit meditative space. And that can also be really important for your nervous system. And then there's other things that we can do that don't require any kind of technology or other people or activity or anything, which, you know, there are three that I I love the most and I love them. Mostly because they're accessible, they're always there. And for many of us, they're pretty doable. And it is the power of the breath, right? Deep breathing is really essential to do whenever we're talking about trauma. Deep breathing helps to relax the nervous system. It helps us create new neural pathways that allow our nervous system to also also register for the long term that we are experiencing healing. And so there's a lot of benefits that are there. It also, it does the same for, you know, our brain, our brain region, you know, kind of just like is very, it's neuroplastic, as we say, and, and it allows for there to be different formations that form to the kinds of behaviors that we're engaging in, including deep breathing, also humming. Um, you know, anybody who's familiar with the Sanskrit and the, the sound om and the ways in mm-hmm. which the om sound really hits the ventral vagal nerve, which is the nerve in our nervous system that is mostly implicated in helping us achieve a state of relaxation. So that already is, you know, a way in which we can directly target the natural relaxation response within our actual nervous system to help it relax more. And then the third one is rocking. So rocking is it creates a, a very similar experience within our nervous system and yet again, you know, has a capacity to also impact not just in the short term but in the long term.
0: So when you say rocking, like, I know, swing. I, as I, yeah, yeah. Swing. I'm picturing as a kid, just yeah. swinging. Yeah. And ohm is so important. I think that's really, those tips are really good because not everyone, especially in the mental health deserts, they don't have access to a sound bath in real life. But all of those other tips are amazing and don't cost anything. So what if, what is your advice to someone who wants to share these tips with a family member And who doesn't want to break the trauma or break the cycle? How can we maybe open up the conversation to help a family
1: member or loved one? Well, the one thing that we need to always remember, well, two things. We need to remember two things prior to even opening up the conversation. Three things. (laughs) Many, many things. (laughs) One is that when we have these dialogues, we are talking about there being two generations of overactive nervous systems that are in, in that conversation, and that there is a likely chance that these nervous systems will trigger each other. So, that's something that we need to like recognize and honor and understand. And it also helps us to humanize the other person if it's a parent, if it's, you know, sibling, whomever so that they can have an understanding of, I see you, I see your pain, I understand, you know, it hurts and I want to sit here with you and with it. And so that that's one thing. The second thing is, it's going to be critical to understand that we may not get the outcome that we desire. Mm -hmm. People will only be able to have a conversation at the level at which they have healed. And it makes it so that the conversation will look like, whatever version of healing they're representing in that moment. Because oftentimes we think we're just going to tie everything up in a nice bow in that first conversation. And it leaves us in a state of disappointment that can be very triggering. The third thing is that, you know, it's going to be important to enter the conversation when both of your nervous systems feel most settled. It's not, it probably won't work to enter the conversation when, tensions are already high. And that also brings me to the segue into the conversation. Usually it doesn't help to point fingers. Most often people will put up a wall as soon as you do so. If you say, you know what, you didn't address your trauma and it came to me, already is a place where blame is being shifted. And even if that person does hold some responsibility, it is very unlikely that in that moment right there, they will engage in accountability because they won't be able to do so if they need to protect themselves. So what what I oftentimes like to integrate into the idea of conversation is uh, for people to engage in something that they like to do together. Mm-hmm. My mother loves Italian dinners. She loves Italian food. So for me, it would be an Italian dinner with my mom. Mm-hmm. I know she'll be happy she'll be talking about the food and smiling and we'll, we'll just have visions of Italy. And so I know that's a really wonderful moment to have a conversation with her. For other people, it may be other things. In the book, I, I reference to one of the families, well, one of the clients that I worked with whose mother she wanted to have a conversation with. And they sat together after watching one of their favorite game shows, which was their routine and the thing that made them happy together. And that was a point of transition into the dialogue. So whatever that is for you, a game show, pasta, whatever it is, find your thing. Find your thing with the fellow human that you want to have the conversation with and then integrate an understanding of what is likely to happen. You know what? I tend to yell whenever I get frustrated. You tend to shut down. Is there a possibility that the two of us can commit to not doing either so that we can maybe have this conversation and be heard by one another? That's the point of entry. Okay. Then we start stating something that is very, very direct. I never really heard you say, I love you. I felt it, but I never heard it. Mm. Is there a possibility, this is the solution that you're proposing, that we might start seeing it now. And then you go into actually doing it. I'd Mm -hmm. like to get us started. I love you. And see where that lands, right? Because that's already a lot of information for someone to take in who's never been able to say, I love you for decades. Mm -hmm. It's already a lot. Most people, they go into a big old ramble and they talk and talk and talk and talk and they lose the person. But if you say those three statements and you just stay there and allow empty space for them to be able to process and then respond, it's probably going to lead you at least to maybe a a better location in the conversation. And if you don't get the response that you desire, have a COPA head plan in place where you can just do your deep breathing, do your rocking, do your humming to just self soothe because you, you might experience that disappointment that could come.
0: Yeah. Those are really good tips. And um, I'm going to use them too. And I wish I even had them before my mother passed away. But so we're talking about family. And I was listening to your podcast by the same name, Break the Cycle. And we were talking, this podcast is coming out around the holidays. And you, had about, you were talking about tips for family gatherings and triggers. And I think that's really important because a lot of people that I'm talking to, they're like, oh, I got to go to my mom's. I got to go to my dad's. My aunt is going to be there. My cousin, you know. So do you have even three tips on navigating family gatherings this holiday?
1: Yes. You know, I have not yet seen a family that has placed trauma at the dinner table and that it has come out with a good outcome. So as much as I am a big, I mean, obviously, right? Wrote a whole book about, you know, how we need to engage in these conversations, right? There's a reason I have a lot of motivation to say, let's have the dialogues. We need to liberate ourselves and our families from the emotional burdens that have plagued us. Important. Mm -hmm. The holiday dinner table has in my opinion, in my personal experience, in my professional experience, has not yet proven to be a safe and steady place to have conversations about trauma. And most of us are like, oh, everybody's here. Let me just drop the load at the dinner table, just (laughs) drop on top of the turkey with the gravy. And it's not, it doesn't really work out well. Most people will shift directly into shame, Mm -hmm. guilt. And what happens when these emotions surface is that we automatically guard up and we say things that can be harmful, hurtful, re traumatizing, and triggering. And so it is a really, really bad setup for any of us. We're hoping to have our emotions validated around what happened. So, my first tip would be really, really thoroughly consider the possibility of not bringing trauma to the dinner table, but instead having the conversation, like I mentioned, in a structured, kind of pre planned way when you have one individual in front of you that you want to have a conversation with. And that one individual seems to have some level of preparation for the conversation. They're feeling at ease, they're calm, all those things. The second thing is there will be people that will say something that will likely trigger you. So that's actually something that's beyond your control. But what is within your control is your response. And the ways in which you can engage in a response that feels more rooted in how you would like to approach these kinds of situations is by actually taking care of yourself. That means that before you head into the family gathering, it could be helpful to actually do some deep breathing. Most people forget these things. They just Mm -hmm. kind of, they get ready, they rush, they go in, you know, they Mm -hmm. grab whatever dish they're supposed to bring they landed at the door. They forget the deep breaths and the deep breathing is really going to help you to go in there with a more settled nervous system. So whatever it is that people throw at you won't hit you as hard. That's really critical. But also having that same technique work for you throughout the evening, meaning that if someone says something, your mind can go directly into, I need to take some breaths. Either I need to take the breaths sitting here at this table because getting up maybe is like, you know, won't fare well with people yeah. or I do not wish to get up. I wish to just kind of remain if that's your choice, right? If it is your choice, you can do deep breathing and no one will know. Yeah, You can just breathe deeply, you know, and just sit there. I've that deep. a lot
0: of times, it, whether family or even I take these tips into the conference room or meetings. Yeah,
1: like, exactly. <laughs> yeah. I used to do that. I do that, you know, with conversations I know are going to be tough. I do that when I need to step away from a conversation and just like gather myself. So all that's going to be essential. But also after, after the festivities are done, a lot of us are left with lingering emotions. So what do you do with that? You breathe. Mm -hmm. You know, you continue to validate yourself. Like that was hard sitting through that. That sucked. Whatever that cousin said was really out of pocket. Didn't like it. And also, I still feel the remnants of rage around it. Okay, then help yourself feel settled. And and so that that's one that people can do as well. So it's breathing. It's a very lengthy response, but we oftentimes think, let me take a breath. We take one breath and we forget that deep breathing requires about five minutes. And if I'm telling you five minutes before, during, and after, I'm I'm talking about 15 minutes of deep breathing to help you really settle. So it's important to really... Just give the comprehensive like orientation about around that practice. And then the third thing would be...
0: There was something you said in your podcast that I would love to bring up because I think that I've witnessed this with my own family or sometimes even my husband gets anxiety around it is people tend to uh, drink more or take substances more during the holidays. And it can then get that family just riled up or... You mentioned something about like if you're in recovery and you're not comfortable, but how to manage that situation?
1: Yeah, you know, we, we have to, it, it's important for us to be mindful of our specific triggers. I think that most of us going to these gatherings having some sort of a baseline understanding that substances will be present and not realizing the multitude of ways in which substances can be triggering to us because we are so used to kind of suppressing that part of us and just like being in the moment. And so what happens when we desire to have some mental separation from something that's triggering? We need to go into the next room. We need to go take a walk outside. We need to find a way to not be maybe presence at all, maybe leaving the party early, right? Like all of these things are going to be like parts of how you have to take care of yourself. And of course, like I'm talking about distance separation, you know, like a lot of that is going to be what is necessary in those moments. And I do understand that some of us don't have that as a choice, right? So a part of what I sometimes like to do with folks is I like to almost zoom out of the room because very often what tends to start being triggering is what's being said, what is coming out of people's lack of inhibition, like all those things. But when we can zoom out and almost become a fly on the wall, we start just observing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And that observing from that place, it's almost like this process called like metacognition or meta-awareness where we're just like looking at what is happening below us, right? We're the fly on the wall, like up on the ceiling somewhere, right? And we're just looking at everybody's behaviors as they're shifting, after they're morphing, as more wine is entering, you know, the conversation. And it allows us an opportunity to create some level of mental distance and emotional distance from even what's being said. So when a physical distance is not Possible, or we're not able to actually create that for ourselves for whatever our reasons might be, there can be a moment where we can emotionally and mentally detach in a very like intentional way. It's not a dissociative process, it's intentionally saying, I'm going to zoom out. I'm going to take myself out of the conversation and just be an observer. And it allows for you to get a bit of the respite that you might need in the moment.
0: Yeah, I love that. It's a really good tip. And I think sometimes probably for me because I am an introvert, but it's not a bad thing to just be an observer. That's okay. And I I love that tip. I'm going to use that one more. (laughs) Love that. Thank you, Dr. Marielle Bouquet, for joining us on the Big Silence podcast. We will put everywhere to find you, your book in the show notes, but where can everyone listening find you?
1: Everyone can find me at DrMarielBouquet.com. I'm mostly on LinkedIn these days. And my book, Break the Cycle, can also be found on my website or wherever books are sold.
0: Right. And it's pre-sale now and then officially launches the first week of January. Yeah. January 2nd. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you. I've thoroughly enjoyed this conversation.
1: Me too. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for joining us today and every Wednesday. If you loved this episode or think a loved one could benefit from listening, please share. And follow us on Facebook and Instagram at the.big.silence. Head over to thebigsilence.com to sign up for our newsletter to stay in the loop for live events coming up and details on the release of my memoir, The Big Silence. And as always, we'd love a like subscribe and leave a review on anywhere the podcast can be found I love you and I will see you next Wednesday the big
1: silence the big silence